All right, we're reading from Acts, and it is chapter 14. It starts in verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch in Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. All right, thank you, Ruth. Great, yes, great, great reading, great reading. Um, so we got Belmont, ha- bleh, Belmont Heights House Church here tonight. I'm going to be honest with you. I live in Tampa since the 90s. I don't know where Belmont Heights is. <laughs> I've lived all over Tampa. And I don't know where you guys are from, but I know you and I'm glad you're here. Um, so, um, yeah, this is a great passage. Um, by the way, uh, before we get going, I have to remember, you guys are over here, and the camera's over here, so I'm going to talk to you, and I'm going to go like this and look at you guys, too. Um, I'm going to move this out of the way, because I will guarantee you I'll trip on that. Um, okay, we're trying, to, we're trying to figure out the best route for phase three, which is 25% capacity in here, like 50 or 80 people or so, uh, and then like 100 people or more on the lawn. Um, we're trying to find the best solution for everyone to see what's going on. And it's, I, I'm, it's becoming hard to find projectors that are bright enough in the daytime. Or if you guys know of like, we're looking for companies that we can rent like something from that we can put out there, like LCD panels or something. So if you're out there and you're like, Psh, I've got a stack in my garage, um, hit us up. Um, and uh, yeah, hit, there's, a, there's a floating little thing right over here somewhere that says, uh, if you can help, email us. And if you need help, no, if you can help, text us. If you need help, email us. Um, Okay, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this passage. This is a fascinating passage, and there's a lot happening. And today we're basically talking about idolatry, um, and there is uh, a lot to talk about here. And um, yeah, let's pray, and we'll dive into this. Father, 
Thank you for what you are doing here uh, in our midst, wherever we are. Um, I pray that you would take care of, take care of and, and watch over my brothers and sisters, wherever they are. Um, watch over my family. Uh, keep them safe. Keep them close to you. Keep them in love with you and each other and the world around them. Let them be your faithful presence in the midst of the, uh, the neighborhoods in which they are um, they are gathering as house churches and, and living and working. Um, I pray that right now that we would, we would receive from you whatever it is that you have us to receive. I pray that, that uh, the message that you have for us would be clear and it would be bright and we would, would be easy to receive um, no matter how hard the truths actually are. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay. Uh, Zeus and Hermes, that's where we're at. So um, when Paul and Barnabas, here's what happens, in case you missed any of this. Paul and Barnabas go into a city. First, I, I, didn't, I didn't have Ruth read the passages before this because it's, it's a lot and it's the same thing that's happened several times. They go into a city um, in Conium and they speak there and the Jewish leaders get really mad at them and drive them out. So they walk to the edge of the city, they shake the dust off their feet, which is sort of like a, we're, we're done with you, like we're not... Um, like, we, we don't take responsibility for you. And then they moved on, and they went to the Gentile territory, and they meet this guy who is lame. He's been lame. He's never walked since he's been born, and everyone knows him because that's what you did in the, in the ancient world. You knew who the beggars were. They were born in precarious situations, and their entire life would be them at a certain place begging, usually in front of synagogues and, and, and temples. Um, and Paul and Barnabas heal this guy, and people from all over the place start gathering around, and... They know what's just happened, and their instant first thought, let me, let me read it to you. It says this. It says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the uh, Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Um, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Of course. If someone's the chief speaker, you're going to call him Hermes. Um, but no, so Hermes is, we're going to talk about who Zeus was. Hermes is basically the, um, the mouthpiece for the gods. He's like the messenger, the, 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 the one who, who basically speaks for them uh, in the ancient world. Um, and so interesting things start to happen. And we're going to talk about why they thought this. By the time I'm done here, you're going to be like, oh, I, I know exactly why they did what they did. Um, so they're, as they're in the city, they're probably in the city a few days, and people continue to spread the word that Zeus and Hermes, the ancient gods that we worship, are here among us and they're walking around and they healed somebody and they have messages for us and they're preaching and so they're, this message is spreading everywhere. Someone runs down to the temple, uh, the temple to Zeus, which is outside the city gates. We're gonna talk about that as well. And they tell the priests there and the priests prepare this sacrifice. Um, so here's an ancient sort of, um, uh, an ancient relief of like sort of this exact thing happening. You got a pl guy playing He's playing one flute, and it looks like another guy's putting another flute in his mouth at the same time. Talent. Um, and then, uh, and, and they've got this bowl that they are, they've decorated, and they're coming out of the temple with this sacrifice, and they're going to take this sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas uh, so they can, because Zeus and Hermes are here, and we're going to offer them this sacrifice. Um, and so um, this bowl comes from outside of the city of, of, um, ugh. Sorry, hold on a second. Where are we at? Zeus Hermes. Okay, so yeah, it comes outside of the city. Um, now, I want to show you a picture of, of Lystra today. Uh, it's not much. 
It's called a tell now. It's just a mound where they know the city was, and there's nothing there anymore. Uh, and one day they will get the go-ahead from the government, and they will dig this up, and they will unearth the city of Lystra, I'm sure, at some point. Um, and then we'll learn a lot more about this story. This is how things go. There's plenty of cities. Corinth, for example, is still looking like this. Um, and there's a lot of cities that we learn about them, more and more about them, about them as we dig them up. When we, fun fact, I have a lot of fun facts. Fun fact, when we dug up Pompeii, we learned a lot about how to read the book of Romans. Um, and... Uh, that's of no use to you. Um, so this is Lystra, and apparently somewhere in this mound is also the remains of this. This would be the Temple of Zeus. Uh, the Temple of Zeus, uh, we tend to picture these ancient temples as just like one color, stone. They were incredibly ornate, beautiful, very colorful, um, incredible architecture, very huge, very, very big. Um, and so... This is outside the temple gates, and this is where that priest was. And I want to give you a little background on what exactly is going on, because it raises a lot of questions. Why would anyone, I mean, there's a lot of accounts of ancient people being healed. Why in the world did these people suddenly think that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes of all people? Like, why not any other god in the world? Why these ones? Well, that has to do, the, the background for this text is rooted in actually... Surprisingly, the ancient writings of Homer um, from about the 8th century BC. Everyone knew the stories. These are stories that were told and passed down, and everyone loved them. Um, in one of his main, uh, in one of his stories, uh, Homer uh, writes an account. He writes a story about Jupiter, who's, um, which is the Latin name for Zeus, and Mercury, which is the Latin name for Hermes. So Zeus and Hermes. Um, Homer, he writes about them visiting a town which was, used to be right outside of Lystra. And that town, uh, that town was called Phrygia. And um, it, he says basically that they came down as human beings. There's like ancient paintings of this. The, uh, this is a picture of, of Zeus and Hermes, Zeus, Hermes, on the side of an ancient clay pot that they have found. Um, and they're celebrating the fact, uh, the great story of Homer, that these gods at one point came down and they walked through this area and these towns. And here's how the story goes. So they come and they're walking around and they're, they're pretending like they're just regular old people. They're like, just be human, be cool. And they're walking around um, and they cannot find a place to stay. Nobody will give them hospitality. Uh, they visit over a thousand different homes and every one of them turns them away. doesn't give them a place to sleep or food to eat. Uh, and then finally, there's a little old elderly couple who are very poor, and they come to their door, and they say, yes, you can come in. You can, what is ours is yours, and, and, and you, can, you can sleep in our beds, and we'll sleep on the floor, and you can eat our dinner. We'll, we'll sacrifice one of our, our lambs that we have. We only have like a couple, and we will sacrifice, we'll, 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 um, we'll slay them and, and cook them up and serve them to you because this is... Um, we want to be hospitable to you. They didn't know that they were gods. They didn't know that they were, they just thought they were regular human beings. They're just showing brotherly love to these men. And so in the morning, when Zeus and Hermes awaken, they walk out, they reveal who they are, um, and then they go to the town square and they reveal who they are to everyone in the town, um, at which point they level out a punishment and they slay everyone in the town. Everyone just drops dead, except for the little old couple. They now become... Um, they are made into the guardians of the temple of Zeus, 
which was there at the time when Paul and Barnabas visited. Um, and they, may, they basically declare, you are now the guardians of this temple. And as the story goes, when this little old couple died, they became giant trees that decorated the sides of the temple for centuries. Okay? Not pictured. I don't know why. Um, but that is the story that these people knew. Uh, a couple questions. Why would you tell a story like this in the ancient world? The reason you would tell a story like this is because your morals come from your stories in the ancient world. The story that you're telling. We still do this today. We tell the story of America, right? We tell the story that we want our people to believe of our country. And every country is doing this. You're telling the story to your kids so that they will know what it means to be an American. Um, and so they were telling the story of what it meant in the ancient world to be Greek. Um, hospitality was a huge deal to this very day in that region. Um, especially, it's, it's especially even in places in the Middle East like Afghanistan and Pakistan. They still practice hospitality um, in incredible ways. If there's wandering strangers in the desert, they will take them in, they will kill one of their lambs for you and cook it up for you. They will give you their own bed and their own clothing and their own place to sleep and they will sleep outside and let you have their house for the evening because that is Middle Eastern hospitality. That is what you do. And it's always been like that. And the reason it's been like that is because of the stories that they told. Um, and it's important that they had these stories because in the ancient world, if you are wandering and nobody takes you in, you don't, have to play, you don't have a place to stay, you're going to die. You're going to sleep outside. You're going to get killed by a wild animal. You're going to get, get beaten up and killed by a robber on the road. You just aren't going to survive. You need each other in the ancient world. So even your enemy who's traveling along from your, from a, from your, your rival nation, you will bring them in and take care of them as if they are your own child. So that's what's happening. Paul and Barnabas are mistaken for sort of a reenactment of the story of Zeus and Hermes. They're like, we've seen this before. They're gods. And so they begin to worship them. They begin to offer sacrifices to them. And this goes on for a couple of days. And Paul stands up and makes a speech. And here's what he says. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without, a te without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. And he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And the passage says that even though Paul makes this speech. The people continue to offer sacrifices to them. Some of them continue to. Many of them did not. They begin to turn away and turn on them. And it's about this time that the, that the, the Jews from the, the previous city, the Jewish leaders, show up and begin to explain fully the message that Paul is giving, which turns them against Paul and Barnabas. Um, and so... Um, Whatever it was, like at, at some point something clicked and they turn on them um, and they turn specifically on Paul because he's the messenger and they want to shut him up and they have to get him to stop saying what he is saying. Um, and they basically drag him out of the city gates and they stone him. They, drag, they stone him and then they drag him out and they leave him to die because they believe that he is now dead and they just left him out there. So I want to explain now the sudden turn. I've already explained sort of their like, realization that these are gods and, and why they did that. Now I want to talk about why the sudden turn on them. Because this is a huge deal. You, you go from offering sacrifices to somebody to picking up stones and rocks and killing them and dragging their body out of the city. Um, 
I want you to notice the words of Paul in this sermon. I'm going to underline some of them for you. So we have this message of good news. If you've been at Watermark long enough, you've heard me talk ad nauseum about the word euangelion, which is the word we translate as good news or gospel. Um, it is a message that there is a new king, a new ruler in the world. Um, and it says that, he says, and, and he's telling you to turn from worthless things to the living God. So he has now just called Zeus and Hermes and these gods that they worshiped all over the city, worthless things. He just called them worthless things, not people, things. Uh, and then he says, who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. That is wildly offensive to anyone who worships Zeus. We'll talk, we'll talk about why in a second. And then lastly, the most offensive thing he could have ever said to these people. Uh, it says, he has shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. And he provides you with plenty of food. So these are really, really strong words for these people to hear. Um, because Zeus, in the Greek religion, was in fact the high god, the god over all the other gods, the king. Um, the gospel was regularly proclaimed about how he became king. Uh, not only that, he was also considered um, the father of gods and humanity. These gods were, you could see them in the stars and the moon, uh, which means when Paul says he is the god who made this heavens, he's talking about like, the other, he's basically replacing Zeus with Yahweh, with Christ as well. Um, and Zeus, lastly, was also considered the giver of rain and fertile crops. And Paul has just said, he has shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons and provides you with plenty of food to fill your hearts with joy. So the reason that they must now kill, they have to kill Paul and Barnabas now, is because they believe that um, that... Uh, I'm sorry, hold on just a second. Um, because they knew, they knew their, their own people's story, okay? Which is why they confused Paul and Barnabas for gods, because they knew their own story, their own history that they were living out. And when Paul says what Paul is saying, they know their story, which means he's blaspheming the God, and if our God Zeus gets mad, which is what the things that Paul is saying is going to enrage Zeus if Zeus is listening, and so in order to, like last time this happened, last time Zeus was mad at their people, he slayed everyone in the entire city except for a little old man and a little old lady. And they will do everything they can to keep this from happening again. And so Paul is standing there giving credit for all the things that Zeus does to Christ. And so they have no choice. They have to shut him up or they're all gonna die. They have to kill Paul. This is what they have to do. Um... Because what Paul has just said in the minds of the Lystrians, uh, of, of the Lystrians, uh, was going to cause them to be destroyed. It was absolute blasphemy. Now, I don't blame the Lystrians for wanting to kill Paul. I understand it. Um, they weren't trying to do something evil. They were actually trying to do the most good that they can because they live in a society, they live in a community that is functioning and working um, and idol worship to Zeus and Hermes was just a part of their story and a part of their economy. And Paul was threatening all of that by bringing the gospel of Jesus into their midst. Um, religion in the ancient world is not like religion is today. Religion in the ancient world, it wasn't just something you practiced on the side. It was a thread that ran through every aspect of your life. It, 
it dictated your entire story, the life that you lived, it dictated your architecture, the types of food that you ate, how you planted your crops, which crops you planted, when you harvested them. It dictated festivals that you would take part in throughout the year. It dictated um, um, just the way you would eat your food. It dictated the clothes that you would wear. It, it dictated literally how you governed everything. Their religion was who they were. It was not something that they could just change and separate and move out of. Religion dictated culture in the ancient world. It decided all of your daily activities, everything about them. It runs, it runs through every phase of your life. And the practice of your worship literally determines every facet of your culture. It's all about the story that you're telling. The gods are, if the gods are angry with you, they have to be appeased. And so your daily activities are centered upon keeping your people alive and keeping the gods happy. That is the forefront of your thought every day. It's the greeting that you greet other people with. Um, a great day Zeus has created. You know, like everything that you do centers around keeping these gods happy. It's the culture uh, that built their story. And without that story, if that particular story hadn't been told there, their culture would have looked wildly different. If there was some other god story that was told, that would have then dictated their culture and their story. Stories are the reason that ancient cultures practiced hospitality. Without this story, people would be left to die out in the wilderness regularly. And it was this story that they believed held them together and kept them together. It, was, it wasn't just a moral, ethical ideal that they shared. It was, it was a story that says, we did this and we died, and so now we do this. And so if these guys are coming in here, and they're not Zeus and Hermes, but they're claiming Christ does the things that, that we think Zeus and Hermes does, they have to die. I don't hate them, I just have to shut them up. That's what's happening. Because the story of Jesus, and this is where we sort of ask the question, why is this story told? Why is it in the book of Acts? Every story in the book of Acts is there for a reason. Why is this story in the book of Acts? Because the Christians have to know, the Christians in the churches, in the first generation of, of Christians, they have to know that the gospel of Jesus is going to threaten every civilization in some way. The gospel of Jesus is threatening to ancient cultures. And it's equally threatening, and this is, this is where we're going to go this morning. The gospel of Jesus is just as equally threatening to our culture, even though we don't realize it. The culture that we live in. We have idols today that just like those idols dictated their entire culture, we have idols today that dictate everything about our culture that we have built. Most of our systems, in spite of our high ideals and noble ambitions, have been driven by the winds of expediency, of self-interest, of, of greed and fear and pressure to succeed and pressure to be recognized and pressure to be a good American and live up to the story that we have been given that has been passed down to us and the documents written to determine our lives and everything that we do as Americans is built upon some forms of idolatry here and there that run through the thread of the entire thing. And one of our goals as Christians is to find them and destroy them at any cost. And it costs a lot. When we think about how politicians make their decisions, politicians don't make their decisions the same way the church and the apostles and Jesus Christ made his decisions. Apostles make their decisions by licking their finger and holding it up in the air and saying, okay, the wind's going that way. If I want to stay in power, the majority of the people are moving this way. I need to get out in front of them and say, yes, I'm actually leading you in this direction. We know they're not. Um, I'm not one who believes that the election of a president determines 
um, the direction of a country. I think it reveals the direction of a country. I think that's what it does. Because all politicians are doing is trying to stay in power. So they lick their finger, they hold it up in the wind, see which way the wind is blowing, and they get out in front of it and find a way to get the people what they want. That is the story. What does everybody want? I will do that. Because I have to maintain power and authority. Even if it's terrible. Um, But the church is telling a different story. The church makes decisions, and the ancient church especially, the apostles especially, they practiced principled decision-making that was centered upon allegiance to Jesus and nothing else. It didn't matter which way the wind was blowing. It didn't matter what the threat was to them. The church is telling a different story. The church is telling the story of Jesus, which is why Paul writes things like this to the church in Philippi. He says, do not consider, he talks about Jesus. He says, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is a different story than any of the stories that we're telling. None of us seem to be actually trying to give up whatever privilege and authority and power we have. We find it very difficult to let go of power. Once in a while, I will get on the internet and just say, let go of power just to see what happens. And sometimes people are like, you could use that power for good. I'm like, no, let go of it. It's bad. Let it go. Be like Christ. Don't wield power. Wield servitude. Wield love and generosity and mercy. The power of God is not like the power of the world. And in fact, the power, when, once you realize how powerful the power of God actually is to serve other people and to sway them and gather them and redirect the world through humble service of the cross instead of the coercive power of the sword, you realize just what power actually is. So any culture in the ancient world, just like Lystra, any culture that was built upon the worship of idols, which Lystra was, is threatened by the kingdom built upon the story of Christ. If Jesus does all these things for you, and that God does not, then Jesus must replace those things, which means your entire economy is in danger. Do we really think, though, if we stand back and look at it, do we really think that our culture and our society and our systems were not built upon idolatry? Of course they were. Because the human heart is an idol-making factory. That's what it does. It's incredibly naive for any of us to think that the message of Christianity is not equally threatening to America, to Florida, to Tampa, to St. Petersburg, Clearwater, or Belmont Heights, somewhere in the nether regions of Tampa. It's incredibly naive to think that possibly even this church watermark is not in some ways built upon idols which once we recognize them, we will realize that if we remove this idol, if we smash this idol, other things are gonna come down with it that are gonna cost us a lot. That's how it goes, that's how it works. The words of Christ threaten everything. They threaten our economy, our comforts, our partnerships, they threaten all of it. For example, I wanna point something out to you. Jesus starts his ministry with this passage right here. It's Isaiah, and he says, this is about me, okay? And it says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has, he has anointed me, that means he's made me king, to proclaim good news to the poor, 
And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner. Now, I could keep going, but I'm just going to stop there for a second. I just want you to ponder those two. Even just, just the second one, freedom for the prisoner. If Jesus really intends, and I want you to ponder this, I want you to like, imagine that this is not a metaphor. It's not, by the way. And it were quickly say, that's an interesting metaphor. What does it mean to set the prisoner free? It means make sad people happy. No, 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 no. It literally means like letting prisoners out of jail. It, but it can't mean that. Because if it meant that, that'd be really dangerous for our society. Why? Is our society built upon idols? Yeah. Like, it is. When Jesus says he has come to set the prisoner free, it's not a metaphor. He means it. And he intends to do it. Like, he literally will do it one day. Whether we want him to or not. And he means it. He intends to do it through the church, even. Like, through us. He intends for us to join him as we somehow set all the prisoners free. Do you realize how big our prison population is? Just in, in our how about just in our state? It's massive. California got in trouble a couple of years ago because their prison population got so large that the government was like, you need to cut down this prison population. Like, this means, if, if Jesus intends to set the prisoners free, this means all kinds of stuff needs to change. There's thousands of moving parts that contribute to people of all ages being locked in little rooms for decades and decades. There's all kinds of moving parts pieces and there's jobs and institutions and careers and police forces and techniques and methods and the economy for locking people up alone is massive. It's bigger than many countries. And that's just talking about our country. But I want you to know Jesus intends to empty those prisons. That's what he intends to do. The and we have to ponder, like, if that's what Jesus intends to do, then how did we get here? We've always had the Bible with us. How did we get here? How did we decide, like, this is the way forward? At some point, apparently, we had idols. The thing that, the thing that, that we're supposed to get from Jesus, which is, like, reconciliation and, and, and our security and our identity, um, and justice we've decided to get from other things, idols that we have created and said, well, we'll just do this. And it turns out that Jesus intends to smash every idol. But when he does that, we're gonna, we're gonna be in trouble. The life that Jesus lived, the kingdom that he has taught us about, and the Christiform life that he has called us to threatens everything. It threatens our healthcare industry, our military industrial complex, our auto industry, luxury industries, lawmaking, policing, prisons, food industries, housing markets, how we accomplish our work, the stock market, mining, manufacturing, border keeping. When Jesus' kingdom actually comes, these idols will all be destroyed and taken apart. And when, even when Jesus really just comes in our lives and in our own church, we will begin to see these idols everywhere. And as we begin to threaten these idols, there's a problem. Because these idols are like a thread that runs through a shirt. And as you pull out that thread, the shirt's gonna begin to fall apart. And we love the shirt. We love to wear the shirt. It gives us power and wealth and identity. It gives us all of it. And so what we do is if anyone begins to pull on that thread, we do exactly what the people of Lystra did to Paul and Barnabas. 
We stone them. We do away with them. We shut them up. We paint them up as something that they're not. We declare you couldn't possibly be speaking the words of Jesus. We mock them. We tell them what you're saying is not pragmatic. And we ignore books like 1 Corinthians, which specifically says the gospel is not pragmatic. The gospel is foolishness to those, uh, to those who are perishing. But to those of us who believe, it is the message of God. It is God's tool of redemption. Like, what Paul and Barnabas experienced by being attacked and stoned and left for dead would be copied by thousands and thousands of Christians for centuries afterwards who were doing the same work throughout history. And every, it's the same thing that happened before them. It's the same thing that happened after them. The, the prophets marched in and they came in from the desert and they came in and looked at the people and he said, you keep worshiping and you keep making sacrifices, but you know what? Like there's these immigrants who are dying and starving and you're not giving them anything. There are widows um, and orphans who are desperately in need and you do nothing for them. But that is the heart of God. And so none of this means anything and you should do away with this and take care of them. But the problem is if they started actually taking care of all these people, it threatens their big money-making economy that came out of the temple. And they love the money-making economy that comes out of the temple. What Paul and Barnabas experienced is what Christians would always experience. Every Christian who really complains singular allegiance to Jesus in this world and points out the path of Christ, especially to other Christians. If you fast forward to the book of Acts 19, chapter, Acts chapter 19, this happens again, and we're gonna talk about it, I guess, in a few weeks when we get there. But Paul preaches against idols and people give up their idols, and what happens in Acts 19, read it this week, the idol industry crashes and people lose their jobs and they try to kill Paul. They don't try to take, they don't try to, they don't try to like patch up the system in another way. They decide to kill the guy and get back to work making the idols because they like it. They like what it gives them. Um, the second generation of Christians, what we call the early church, the marginalized church, there's all kinds of stories we have from them taking part in the same thing where they go into the city and they declare, this is not right, this is not right, this is the path of Jesus. You're doing this right, that's the path of Jesus, but this is not. And every time they do this, people get very upset and they begin to kill them and sporadically persecution pops out. There's one particular story that I love um, where Origen is arguing with a guy named Celsius and Celsus is a pagan, he's a critic of Christianity, and he lashes out against the Christian community for, for their refusal to serve in the military. Because Christians for the first three centuries didn't serve in the military. They wouldn't carry a weapon for the empire, and they wouldn't, um, uh, they wouldn't commit any acts of violence under any circumstances, which is why so many of them were martyred. Um, and Celsus lashes out and Origen's like, what are you so mad about? We're not doing anything to you. We're living our peaceful lives over here. And here's what Celsius says. He says, if all men were to do the same thing as you, there would be nothing to prevent the king from being left behind in utter solitude and des in desertion. And the forces of the empire would fall into the hands of the wildest and most lawless barbarians. He's basically saying, if you guys don't serve in the empire, uh, if you guys don't serve in the military, and then you get other people to become more Christians, we're not going to have anybody to serve in the military, and then how are we going to defend ourselves against the people that we have been marauding and oppressing for hundreds of years? Like, yes, the, the gospel is disruptive. 
That's what it does specifically. It disrupts our world, our kingdoms, because they're all Babylon. It disrupts our personal lives. And every time God exposes an idol in our lives, we're like, but I, oh, that's gonna cost me. And we either smash it and do away with it and live sacrificially, or we hold on to it and say, no, this is a pragmatic American thing to do. And I will continue to do it. It still happens today. Uh, if we go back to World War I, there were a group of Christians, of Mennonites, who were thrown into a military prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, all because they refused to serve in the military. They offered to be medics, and they said, no, we want soldiers. And they're like, we're not going to kill anybody. We're followers of Jesus. And so they arrested all the Mennonites, and they threw them all in Leavenworth prison. And they started torturing them, trying to get them to coerce them to carry a weapon for the empire. And two of these men, called the Hoffer brothers, refused water, uh, and they basically went on a hunger strike. Oh, I'm sorry, no, they were refused, they were refused water, and they were thrown into a, uh, naked into a freezing cellar, and they were tied up with their, with, their, with their hands above their head on rods and their feet barely touching the ground in a freezing cellar, and they were tortured, and they died there, American citizens in an American prison, in the last 105 years. And there's still a, uh, a plaque there to this day that sort of reminds them of their story and puts a little Bible verse that they claimed the entire time. Because they insisted that the path of Jesus was the way to peace. And when the Christians stood up and they said, that is not the way to peace. That is the way to more bloodshed and more misery and more violence, and more empire building. God loves us just as much as he loves our enemy. And he's their God just as much as he is our God. And none of the things that you are fighting for have anything to do with the kingdom of God. It's all about the kingdoms of men. And they said, we would rather die. And some of them did. Watermark. We would be foolish to assume that as we grow in Christoformity that our personal lives would not face disruption. They will. They have to. If your personal life isn't facing disruption, if you don't have to make some hard decisions about how to dwell in this world, you are not taking allegiance to Jesus seriously enough. I would encourage you every day to commit to the public display of the life of Jesus every single day. What we talked about last week, living the story. There's not a new law that has been created for you that now you need to live, to live like a Christian. You gotta do this, this, and this. There's no law, there's a story. And as you walk out these doors, you, you are a theatrical display of that story. And you are living it out. And every moment, you are the presence of Jesus wherever you are. And it is a story that was passed down for you. you it was passed down, it was inherited. It is a communal story that has lasted since the very beginning of Christ. And sometimes it gets off track, but this is part of the story, just like Israel, we were brought back. And we hide ourselves in Christ and we commit to the public display of the life of Jesus every single day. And as we do, pay attention to the ways that it inconveniences you, the ways that it, that it makes demands of you that you don't wanna make. Pay attention to the ways that it threatens your very livelihood and the way that you make money. 
And as you do, commit once again every single day to the life of Christ and not the life of you. It is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. The language is all there. I am hidden in Christ. When people look at me, they don't see me, they see Jesus. And Jesus makes people mad. That's what happens. And so, as we wrap this up, that is what I want for you to ponder today. How is the gospel disrupting your life? How is it disrupting um, the way that you live? Um, And so I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna close out with a collect prayer together. Father, I pray that all of this would somehow become real to us. I pray that we would see the lives of the apostles in the early church as an obvious display of what happens when people live out your truth in the world. And I pray that somehow we would be able to buy in on some level to what they had. I pray that that would manifest itself in us. I pray that we would adequately learn to tell the story together as a collective group of people, a family, moving through this world alongside the kingdoms of this world. May we be the true... um, the the true depiction of you somehow as much as possible. May May we be the church and may the world see it and be drawn to the life giving power of it. May they be freed from their idols. May we be able to somehow expose them to their own idols. Use us to change the world. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Would you guys join me today in a call like prayer? Do me a favor, say this nice and loud with me um, and, uh, and say it like we mean it. Ready? God, who makes all things new, renew our hearts and minds. Bring us to unity in the spirit and in faith through your resurrection. May we become a people who attains the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, bringing your kingdom to earth. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Miss you all. See you soon.